I'm not going to be diving into too many details in the second chunk of 1 Corinthians 12 today. I am going to be reading that passage, but my focus today is going to be on chapter 13, and I couldn't separate the two. You'll see why when we get into it. But if you would like more detail about all of chapter 12, you could go to our YouTube channel, Living Water Community Church, Ypsilanti, and just type in SHAPE series, S-H-A-P-E, stands for Spiritual Gifts, Heart, Abilities, Personalities, and Experience, and you'll find that SHAPE series. There's only four of those uh, messages. They were preached at the beginning of 2019, and I went into a lot more detail. So that's just to let you know, that's why I'm skirting through and kind of skimming the rock on the top of the water for the first part of my message today. All right, are we ready? Let's dive in together. The most important verse of today is actually at the very end of chapter 12, which is verse 31, where in some translations, it says, earnestly desire the most important gifts. Some translations say the most helpful gifts. That's important because we need to ask, what does Paul mean by that? Because if we don't find out what Paul means, we can become in error and we can do exactly the opposite of what Paul had in mind. And unfortunately, there are quite a number of people who are doing the opposite, and they try to elevate certain gifts above other gifts. We're going to take care of that today, and we're going to see why that's not exactly what he had in mind. So let me read for you our passage today. Here is chapter 12, verses 13 through 31. And then once we get into chapter 13, I'll start taking that apart verse by verse. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, well, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand. That does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? Because I've researched that and that's how ears talk. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts. And God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some of the parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. And here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. First are apostles, second are prophets, 
third are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, and those who speak in unknown languages. Are we all apostles? Are we all prophets? Are we all teachers? Do we all have the power to do miracles? Do we all have the gift of healing? Do we all have the ability to speak in unknown languages? Do we all have the ability to interpret unknown languages? Of course not. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now, let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will shine your light of truth on this passage and on chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and that you'll make it come alive in us so that we can avoid error, and in so doing, we would become part of your plan to build unity, to edify the body, to become part of the body in such a way that together we can represent you to a watching world so that others would be drawn into a saving faith with Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's Paul's approach. As we just read, he gives us a wonderful analogy, and it's kind of a humorous analogy. I even wonder if he had fun writing that particular section. An analogy of a body with many, many parts. But the rhetorical questions in verses 29 through 30, are we all apostles, all prophets, all teachers, all miracle workers, all healers, all linguists? He's assuming the answer, which he answers at the very end, well, of course not. <laughs> of course not. He's saying that on purpose to show us that because we are so diverse, it's not to be expected that all of us can expect to have all of the gifts. That's not going to happen. And so when anybody tries to tell you that you need one particular gift or you're not saved, you need to go to this passage and you need to look at what Paul is really saying. There are many of us who are not going to have certain gifts. That's okay. I ended last week's message by saying many of us may think, oh, my gift is not enough. And you'd be right. Our gift by itself is not enough. That's why we're so different. We need all of the gifts together to form this wonderful picture of Christ Jesus, because together, as we're operating within our gifts, as diverse as they are, other people can see Christ much more effectively and much more clearly. So here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, so start at the top of the list. And I almost wish, now I don't know if this is a translation into English problem or if it was just the way Paul was thinking because he tends to think rather legally because he had that law mentality. He numbered his list. He said, first of all, there are these people. Second of all, there are these people. Third of all, there are these people. And then these, he just made his list like that. If you read without getting careful enough into the context, you might think, oh, well, he's saying, so start at the top of the list. First of all, there are apostles, and he is one. So he would say, so the apostles, of course, must be more important than those prophets or those teachers or those mercy showers or whatever. That's not what he's saying. Clearly, by looking at the context of what we just read, he says, no, 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 I'm going to show you how to discern what is the most helpful gift. So none of those offices, which are gifts to the body of Christ, are more important than the other offices. They're all equally important. He's just labeling them so that we can get a handle on what those are. 
many translations in verse 31 would say, eagerly desire the greater gifts. So even though we know God is the one who gifts those gifts and he distributes them as he wills, we're supposed to desire the greater gifts, but we're not supposed to desire speaking in tongues or prophecy or being an apostle or mercy showing or man, I wish I had the gift of being able to make those wonderful baked goods like Faye Burrell can, but God hasn't given me that gift. So he gave me a daughter, but we're supposed to eagerly desire the greater gifts. What does that mean specifically? I think the new living translation captured it exactly right when it said, seek the most helpful gifts. So we might ask ourselves, somebody out there, just say it out loud. So Paul, how can we discern which gifts are the most helpful? Go ahead and ask him. I'm glad you asked. Paul would say, here's my answer. I'm going to show you. It's a far better way that I'm about to show you. And it's all in chapter 13. It's the most excellent way. It's the way of life that is the best of all. Notice how when they're saying the best way of life, that's important, don't you think? He's not saying that this is another gift. It's not one of the gifts that I've already mentioned. He's not saying that it's a special gift that you're to ask for that's saving the best for last because I haven't revealed it yet. Here comes the big secret gift. He's not saying that either. He's saying that there is a way of life, which is the way that's going to unlock all these other gifts. It's the best way. It's the most excellent way. Let me show you that way of life. It's not one of the offices of the church, which he just mentioned either. So with all that as our background, we're going to dive into something. And here's the way to set the stage. I saw a very Italian pastor uh, who shared this true story about his mama, mama. Mamma mia. His mama was his grandma, but they all called her mama. And she was the quintessential Italian mom who had the love language of food. And some of you know what these Italian, they have to talk with their hands, you know, they have to move around a lot like this. And they always a lot of a lot of food. There's cooking all the time. And they say, oh, you're looking too skinny. And that's what happened to Daniel. He went away to college. The food in the cafeteria, bleh was not near, can I get an amen from you college students out there in Hillsdale? Mm -hmm. It's not the same as mama's cooking, unless maybe you had my mom as a cook, and I'm not going to go into that because we had to sort of fend for ourselves. That was not her love language. Fortunately, she had a lot of other good love languages, and I'm grateful for that, but I'm sorry, that's sidetracked. Anyway, can you tell I'm a little ADD today? Let's get back to mama's love language. Mama's love language is cooking, and when he came back, he's looking a little skinny, and she says, oh, they're not feeding you right. I got to put some meat on you, your bones. Let me teach you. And so he's saying, I need to learn how to cook because I can't get the right kind of food there at college. She says, I'm going to teach you. We're going to do this together. So she gets all the ingredients out. She lines them up. He said, now, they didn't have a recipe book. They didn't have anything written down at all. She's grabbing a little of this, a little of that, little pinch of here, a little dump that in there. Mm, she tasted as she goes. He said, it's not very sterile because she's putting her finger in there in the pot, putting it in her mouth, back in the pot again. He said, but that's the only way she could tell if it was getting right. And she was making the sauce because in Italian families, the sauce is everything. And he, she says, now, Daniel, you do this. And he was doing it. Now you do this. And Daniel would do it. Oh, that's my boy. Good for you. And then she would teach him something else. He said, I finished. We sat down to dinner with the family. I had made my first pot of sauce. We got the pasta out there. All kinds of different pasta, of course, in Italian worlds. I don't know which kind of pasta they had, but it was the sauce that was the main thing. And they started eating it. She says, so, Daniel, what do you think? He says, 
it's good, mama, it's good. And I know you taught me, but it, it just, I don't know, it doesn't taste exactly the same as yours. Yours is always just right. And she got up from her seat. She walked around behind him, threw her arms right around him, kissed him big on the cheek. She says, oh, you're so sweet. The reason is I forgot to tell you about the secret ingredient. He says, what? We left out an ingredient? She goes, yes. You have to put all the love into what you're doing. Love is the secret ingredient. She kissed him again. And that was the point. Her point was you have to do everything with love. And Daniel said, that's what Paul is trying to share in chapter 13. God has given us all these wonderful ingredients called the spiritual gifts and the offices, which are also gifts to the church. Those are his ingredients so that we can do something wonderful. But if you don't put the secret ingredient into this wonderful sauce, into the mix, then it's not going to come out the same. But if you only do it by the book, if you're doing it legalistically, you could say, well, I know for a fact that we need to have 10% of the people who have this gift, and we're going to have 80% who have this and this, and we're going to, well, that's one way to look at it. They says, no, no, no. You don't have that special ingredient, you don't have it right. But if you do put that special ingredient in, here's what you can say. He says, you could say, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you could speak all the languages of earth, he says in 13, chapter 13, verse 1, if you could speak all the languages, all of them. Now, I've seen some people who knew a lot of languages. I watched a video where Audrey Hepburn was speaking five different languages fluently, and it was amazing to me to, she, to see how she could do that. She had a gift for uh, languages. But if you could speak all of them on the earth and even the language of heaven itself, the language of angels. We had uh, a babysitter in New York when we lived there for a year. And her family was from Portugal. And they spoke, as you can imagine, Portuguese. Big surprise there. And we loved to listen to her speak that. And she says, my grandpapa would say, Oh, Portuguese is the most wonderful language. It is the language of the angels. And then she would roll something off her tongue. And it was sort of, for me, it sounded musical with a lilt to it. It had a rhythm and a meter to it. It was almost poetic. And it sounded like a cross between Spanish and French. It was the best of both languages. It was beautiful. It was poetry. So if we could speak, and she said, I know it's not exactly all just the language of the angels, but my grandfather thought it was. But if you could speak all the languages on the earth and even speak Portuguese and even speak the real language of heaven, the language of angels. But if you didn't have that one ingredient of love, you didn't love others. He says, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You would just be a headache waiting to happen. Eloquent speech, he's saying, yeah, that's good. Those are good things. You shouldn't get rid of them. We shouldn't all be illiterate. He's not saying that. Are all the languages of the earth necessary? Yes, of course, they are good. They're really helpful for all of us so we can communicate the gospel. The language of heaven, yes, of course, that's wonderful. It's good. But love, yeah, it's even better. It's the most excellent way. How about prophecy, knowledge, and faith? He goes on to expound on his thought there. Verse two, if I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and if I possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be, say it out loud with me, nothing. 
you would be nothing. Even if you had all of those things, you would be nothing. Prophecy, yeah, that's good. Shouldn't get rid of it. Knowledge, yes, it's good. Faith, good. Love, better. Paul had written earlier, even in this same letter, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So he wants to make sure that that love tempers all of those other things that can happen if we start looking at it legalistically rather than putting that magic secret ingredient of love into all the spiritual gifts and even all knowledge or prophecy. Sacrificial giving is something that looks like it's popping up in this next verse, verse three. If I gave everything, everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, somebody runs in front uh, of a bullet to take a bullet for somebody. So they even gave their own life to salvage somebody else's life. I could boast about it. Well, I mean, you couldn't if you took the bullet and died, but okay, I got off on the wrong analogy there. You know what I mean? It's sacrificing yourself for the sake of another person. I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Sacrificial giving may look good on the outside. Without love, doesn't amount to anything. Give all your possessions, good. We shouldn't stop giving our possessions to help other people. Sacrificing our body, yeah, it's good. There are people who go out on the mission field. We had people going out to help with the Ebola crisis in Africa a few years ago. Some of them sacrificed their lives for the sake of trying to help other people. That was good too. But what is it good for if you have no love? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Love is better. Love is better. Special ingredient. When you add love into the mix, you can say honestly, taste and see that the Lord is good. All the joys of those who take refuge in him, as the psalmist said. Now, some personal questions, a little introspection time. Ask yourself, am I good at certain things? Do people tell me, man, you really bless others when you fill in the blank? Another introspective question. Do you find yourself acting out of love kind of naturally? It just comes naturally to you when you do those things. I kind of got nailed on this one a little bit because there are certain things that I am pretty good at, but I have also looked back in my history and I see that because of the fallen nature that still struggles with the nature of God that is trying to conform me into Christ's image, I have certain personality traits that when I am put under pressure, I go to these unhealthy places and sometimes I don't do these things out of love. And so sometimes it's not very effective, as Paul would suggest. So Paul would say, so we need to look to see what is the most helpful gift. What's the best way of life to unlock all the best flavors in the spiritual gift? Well, it's the one that you exercise with love. That's why we have chapter 13. Love, we'll notice from the Apostle Paul in verses 4 through 7, is specific. I think that's good. I think it's good that he got very specific in defining what kind of love he's talking about here. Why? Because if you had some generalized mamby-pamby, Hallmark Christmas special, ooey-gooey kind of love, we might come up with some distortions of love rather than looking at the kind of Christ-like love that Paul is going to define for us here. We see that it's the kind of love that is patient, it's kind, it's not envious or jealous, not boastful or proud. It's not rude. It's not demanding. It's not irritable, doesn't keep a record of wrong, doesn't rejoice about injustice, 
It rejoices when truth wins out. It never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. That doesn't really sound like a Hollywood kind of love to me. This sounds like agape love, which is completely selfless and Christ-like. And that's why I think it's good that it's specific. The Greek words that we just looked at that define how specific it was, those Greek words are active and repetitious. That means that we practice this kind of love until it becomes a habit, like you would as an athlete or as a musician or a ballet dancer or whatever you do that you need to keep in practice to make sure that you're in tip-top shape. Now, I have to admit, and I hate this, I haven't played my trombone in weeks. There got to be a point where things got a little bit crazy because of the pandemic. We're not practicing those of us who are in the the community concert band, and I wasn't doing any new music to share with the rest of our little uh, virtual band, and I haven't practiced in a while, and I picked it up the other day, and I tried to play for just five minutes. It showed. It showed that I'm going to have to dig that thing out and dust off the cobwebs and get back to work again. We need to practice this kind of love. Otherwise, we can sort of fall out of practice. Doesn't mean we're not saved anymore but it means that we can fall out of practice with this magic ingredient, the secret ingredient, and that sometimes we slide into the unhealthy portions of our personality traits, especially when we're under pressure, and that we may do these things and we may think we're doing them for God. I'm doing this for the Lord. And yet, because we're doing it without having love attached to it, ooh, it comes across as not being very helpful. In fact, Paul would say, it's good for absolutely nothing. I'm sure that's exactly how he would pronounce that. Too. <laughs> the habits that we have means something important for us. I like the fact that we're having habitual get-togethers at 930 for our growth encounters. I'm enjoying that. I, for one, I know this comes as a shock to you. I don't have a photographic memory. I don't. So I need to keep reminding myself about the things that we're studying in God's word. And I love getting into these different books of the Bible. Today's study at 930 was great. I really enjoyed that. It's dusting off some cobwebs in my brain. We need to keep developing those habits of studying God's word because that's some of those things that will keep us in tip top shape and keep that uh, motivation for our love intact. But Robert Morgan in his book, Worry Less, Live More, says this. The word practice implies we must go to work developing certain skills until they become habitual or proficient, just like an athlete or a musician. Shows to me that if Paul's using words in the Greek tense that means practiced, that we need to practice love, a specific kind of agape, Christ-like love. Another writer about this same basic topic, Gretchen Rubin says, and I found this interesting, with habits, we actually conserve our self-control. What do you mean by that? She says, well, take that dirty coffee cup, for example. If I've got a dirty coffee cup on the counter and I think, oh man, I should probably go and put that in the dishwasher, rinse it out in the sink and stick it in the dishwasher instead of letting all the dirty dishes just pile up on the countertop. Well, if you have developed a habit of doing that, you're not having to exhibit self-control because it's already a habit. You do it almost mindlessly. You do it out of habit. So you're not having to work nearly as hard at doing that thing. That makes sense to me. In all of our lives, if we have something that has been something that we think, man, I should really develop some self-control about that. 
maybe we're not looking at that in the right frame of mind. Maybe we should say, I'm going to do this so that it becomes habitual, so that I automatically default to doing the right thing without even having to think about it, and then I won't have to exercise self-control anymore. I think that's kind of what they have in mind. And she says, Gretchen says, our habits are our destiny. I love that statement. I don't even realize, I don't think she realizes how biblical that statement was. Our habits are our destiny. If our habits are built on God's word, then they become a destiny for us, which is rooted and grounded in scripture. And it's taking us into that realm of transformation as we're being transformed into Christ's own image. That's pretty cool. So are we in habit or out of habit? Have you ever fallen out of habit on something? I mentioned my trombone playing as being one thing, several things that I can start to fall out of habits in. And I have to rekindle a love for that thing by doing it until it starts to take shape again, until I think, oh yeah, I, I've forgotten how much I enjoy doing this. I just needed to work at it a while until that kicked in. There was a guy in a local drive-through in a, a local fast food restaurant and I was zipping in there for a quick uh, bite to eat at lunch a couple of weeks ago. He had pulled up into that, can you pull forward into this next space and wait so we can bring the sack out to you kind of things. But he hadn't pulled up quite far enough so that I could get up and wait for my sack and then leave. And so he was sort of blocking the rest of traffic, but he was trying to fiddle with something. I don't know if he was trying to get his card out or he was looking at his phone or whatever. He had a passenger in the passenger side of the seat I'm glad that she wasn't on top of the car. She was in the passenger side. I don't know why I thought to say she was in the passenger side. If you're a passenger, you're good. Okay. Anyway, he was sitting there and he was backing up traffic. There were about 10 cars behind us all. And I was feeling anxious because I was put in the middle of this bunch of cars. And, you know, I have the personality type that I don't want to make waves. And so I would just sit there and feel uncomfortable instead of doing a little courtesy beep where you just go beep, beep. So that he would look up and go, oh, I can just pull forward a little bit. I don't want to do that because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, some of you that have those personality types. So I just sat there. And then finally, he realized what was going on. And he looked in his mirror. And so he pulled up just a few more feet. And that allowed me to get my uh, car out of the way. And as I was pulling past them, it was in a, a warmer day. And so I had my window rolled down and the passenger who was in the passenger side of the car, also had her window rolled down. And I just uh, kind of said very kindly, tried to keep my voice, you know, friendly. And I said, thank you. And he from the driver's side said, love you. And it cracked me up and it just made my day. And I think that guy had to have been practicing that. That's not something that happens just the spur of the moment. I have a feeling that he had the kind of habit of saying something kind to other people in situations that would de-escalate a tense situation like that because it just kind of rolled off his tongue it happened so naturally I'll bet you that that was a habit for him and I thought man I need to develop habits like that instead of falling out of that habit so that my first response is ah you know and flying off the handle or doing whatever it is that we feel uncomfortable about going to that unhealthy place so let me ask this question as we're looking at a love chapter, chapter 13, and the more excellent way of igniting all these wonderful spiritual gifts so that other people can be drawn to Christ. Where does this kind of love come from? 
Where do you find it? Well, you're not going to find it in somebody that you're attracted to. You won't. You can't find it there. You're not going to be found in a thing. There's nothing that you can purchase that's going to give you this kind of love. It's not in your career. It's not in higher grades or doing the very best you can in school. It's not found in a human philosophy. You won't find this kind of agape love in any of those things. The source is not a what, it's a who. Verses four through eight, first part of verse eight. Notice if we just highlight, you can, can you see what jumps out at you with this slide? Jesus, 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 Jesus. He's patient, he's kind. He doesn't envy, he doesn't boast, he's not proud. He is all of these things which Paul has given us, which is the definition a specific definition of this kind of agape love. Jesus never fails because he always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres in doing all these things. Jesus is the source. That's good to know. And it gets personal for all of you because Jesus is all of those things to you. He's giving all those loving attributes to you. That's exactly what he did for you, even on the cross. Not on your best day. Not when you've been feeling pretty good about yourself, because by comparing yourself to other people, you can say, I was pretty loving today. I did pretty well. No, let's take your, best, your worst day. Not your best day, but your worst day. That's the day that Christ died for you on the cross. The day when you were a rascal. The day when you were rebellious in your spirit and in your heart, the day when you were rude and mean and ugly, and the opposite of everything that is that list of loving attributes, that's the day Christ died for you. Because the scriptures tell us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he is all those things to you. That's why it gets personal. So why not follow a, a savior like that? Why would you not Want to follow a Savior who loves you that perfectly and who never fails at being that loving. He is. He is perfect. He never fails. But we're not perfect. And we always fail. We fail all the time. That's why we need a Savior like him. He has all those attributes of love, and he loves us that way so that we can incorporate those attributes into our lives through his spirit, which he gives us as a gift when we trust him, and we can become loving the way he is loving, a lifelong habitual pursuit, not because we can earn it, but because he allows us to love him back, and we become more and more like him as we practice his attributes. Now, Paul gives us something that gives us a clue about the temporary versus the eternal. And this is where people go wrong in thinking about trying to elevate certain gifts above others and giving them more importance than they should be given. Not only is love better, not only is love specific, as we've seen in chapter 13, but love is also eternal. Here's how we get to that, verses 8 through 11. The prophecies that he talks about here, he says, yeah, they will cease. There will come a time when they will cease. The tongues the ability to speak in different languages, even including a heavenly language or the angelic language. Yeah, there will come a time when they will cease as well. Knowledge, even specific knowledge given to us by God, that will cease as well. They're all temporary. They're all partial. And he's pointing to an eternal and a complete future because spiritual mature people start to look ahead in time to those things where everything's going to be complete. I know there are certain people 
I disagree with them politely. There are certain people who will say that the prophecies and the tongues and the knowledge all went away with the apostles. They would call that apostolic succession or secession. They seceded at the time of the apostles. So they went away. I, I told you last week that I believe I've seen enough evidence with my own eyes and from credible sources to believe that God can do anything God wants to do and that we would be limiting him if we take that approach. And I think that you have to kind of work pretty diligently to get around chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians to get to that place where you say that they went away. I think that they are still active and that God uses them from time to time as he sees fit if there's a need for that. If he wants to manifest himself in that, that way, he certainly can. I want to give him permission to do that. I think what Paul is looking ahead toward as we start to see that is they will be unnecessary when we're in heaven. Can you imagine somebody saying, man, I wish somebody come up with a good prophecy today when they're in heaven. <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> They've all been fulfilled already. We don't need any more prophecies. Everything in the Old Testament that were prophesied has come true in Christ. We'll be in Christ's presence. If we want to have a question about that, just go up to him and start asking him. Well, that was fun. Had a little power outage on our end, and I just had a couple of slides, well, four slides left to go. So I'm going to finish those out, and we'll finish this message today. Thanks for hanging in there with us. My apologies to those of you who got interrupted there. Verses 8 through 11, Paul had been saying prophecies going to go away. Tongues, they're going to go away. Knowledge, they will cease. They're all temporary and partial. He's pointing to an eternal and complete future. Then look at this next verse. This is important. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. Well, how do we do that? Well, in part by knowledge, prophecy, and tongues. Those are the things that help reveal a revealing God. We see that through his inspired word. We see the Old Testament, all of which points to Christ. And we see a New Testament church forthtelling, telling the truth from all of these prophecies that have been followed through on and fulfilled in Christ. And when God wants to manifest himself through his spirit, he can still choose to do so in different ways. But then, verse 12, but then we will see face to face. When is then? When we're in heaven. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So there are some methods of communication that God uses. They're helpful. Clearly, they're helpful, but they're inadequate. They're not perfect. Uh, an example of that would be my kids in South Carolina, Katie and Justin. They were communicating for a long time with one another, long distance. And so they had some methods of communication. They were helpful, but it's not the same as face-to-face. -face. I remember after Katie had been down to South Carolina to visit Justin and meet his family, and then Justin reciprocated and came up here to Michigan from South Carolina. And I remember watching him come down the escalator and looking at the faces of both Katie and Justin when they saw each other face to face. Wow. Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's so different than long distance uh, chatting through a chat room or by calling and chatting over the phone. Face to face is always better. It's going to be that way in heaven. We are not going to need some of those things that Paul is talking about because they're going to go away. And I think because of the context, everything that he had said leading up to this verse, I think he meant including prophecy tongues, knowledge. They're all going to be unnecessary when we get to heaven. So the key ingredient, back to that again, this wonderful key ingredient. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. 
Faith and hope are both good. If you had faith to be able to move a mountain and say to that mountain, go over there, that'd be great. Hope, if you had the kind of hope built on the gospel and you knew the future was going to be so much better, that's great too. There's something even better than that, and that's love. It's the most excellent way, according to Paul. And here's the thing. Do you want that kind of love? Because you can. You can have that kind of love. And you can have it by simply asking God to forgive you of your sins, surrounding yourself with fellow believers who are studying God's word together, praying to God, helping one another by exercising our gifts that support one another as the body of Christ, becoming a part of the body. You can have that kind of love. God offers it so freely. And if you want to know more information about how to make that kind of step and to start walking with Christ, please ask somebody. You can ask us. You can contact us through the contact page on our website. However you need to get a hold of a fellow Christian that you know would help you with that, get some help and follow along in the path that is Christ-like because he's got that kind of love for you for the rest of your life and all the way through eternity. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that whoever has been listening to this will understand that you offer those gifts so freely and that you offer these gifts and you offer your love, the perfect kind of love, as has been described in today's message, that specific kind of Christ-like love. And then you want to transform us so that we too can habitually be loving toward others the way Christ has been loving toward us. Help us to be that kind of body of Christ. And thank you that we are so diverse and yet so united in Christ because we need each other and we need the variety of gifts. Thank you for all of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.